COVID demonstrated to us just how important migrants are to the Australian economy, particularly their skills that were on offer. What about the parents of migrants? In the Hawke era, the emphasis was on multiculturalism and how families of skilled migrants helped them settle into Australia. However, that changed in the Howard era. The definition of, quotes, immediate family was amended to no longer include parents of migrants and parent visas were capped and uh, queues developed. Now applicants are said to be waiting up to 40 years, 40 years for an, improv- for an approval. It's a topic fraught with political complications What might be the solution? Peter Mayers is an independent writer and researcher, having published several books on migration and housing, and he's prepared a new report for the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute, which highlights uh, the urgent need, his report does, for migration policy reform. It's building on a report from an expert panel presented to the government in March of this year. Peter, welcome to the program. Hello, Geraldine. Good to be with you. Uh, What's the purpose of this report? Why now? Well, uh, the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute um, contributes to discussions on social cohesion, multiculturalism, immigration and so on. So they publish uh, this narrative series. They publish a couple of these extended pieces of kind of quasi-research, quasi-journalism every year. And they invited me uh, to write a piece for them and I suggested parent migration because... Um, it's an area that we really need to talk about. It's a profoundly difficult area of public policy and Scanlon's intention is to foster debate. And, and my views, the views I've, the conclusions I've come up with aren't necessarily those of Scanlon, but Scanlon is interested in, in us actually talking about this issue which has been uh, very much neglected. When did this backlog that you're describing start? Well, it's been building up for a very long time. Um, And what we're talking here about is permanent parent visas. So if we go back to the 1980s, let's say, parents were included as immediate family and could migrate uh, to join family as of right, as it were. That was the family but, reunion policy, which we're all very well, aware of. Well, yes, yeah, family reunion. Uh, and it was broader than that. And you'll remember, Geraldine, as I do, the, the report by Stephen Fitzgerald in 1988, which was a landmark report on Australia's immigration policy, which really said, actually, so this happened under Labor, well before the Howard government, actually we need to shift our focus to skill, to youth and to English language capacities. Stephen Fitzgerald said that should be the focus, but he still regarded parents very much as immediate family. So he wasn't suggesting that we should exclude parents, but over time, through a series of administrative and legislative measures, parents were gradually excluded. It began under Labor and then it accelerated very dramatically under the Howard government when Philip Ruddick was um, Immigration Minister and Basically, uh, parent visas were then capped and queued, as as you said in your introduction. So that meant that the immigration minister decided there'd only be so many parent visas every year. And once you had more applications uh, than were available under that cap, every other visa application would be queued. So the queues began when we introduced a legislative or an administrative measure to cap and queue. We created the queues or the governments created the queues uh, but they've grown dramatically in the last 10 years and the, the queue or the number of applications in the pipeline 
has grown from 40,000 roughly um, 10 years ago to close to 140,000 today. Goodness. So we're, we're seeing a very, you know, it's, it's, there's much greater demand than places available. So we have set the number of places um, at, a, at a low level. Uh, and uh, and demand has has not changed, or in fact has grown, because of course we've seen large scale migration to Australia. So with that comes the consequent desire, very heartfelt desire of families to bring parents to join them in Australia. And am I right in saying that's because our our, our policy has uh, shifted more towards the bringing of skills to Australia? And I suppose it has to be said, various governments have said, well, look, uh, however humane the policy would be, it will it could cost Australia a lot. They, these people coming won't necessarily be productive workers and they may incur quite a lot of costs around illness. Is that is that a fair comment? That, that's a, a fair comment. And in fact, there's detailed treasury modelling on exactly this. And so the um, the bias in Australia's migration program has been, as for a long time, very much towards skill. About two-thirds of the permanent visas uh, we grant go to skilled migrants and one-third to family migrants. But family migration now, Geraldine, really means partners. It means people's wives and husbands, fiancés, um, partners and so on, lifetime partners. So when we talk about family migration, we're really talking about partner partners. migration. Okay. And then there's a very small number of visas set aside each year for parents. So last year it was uh, 8,500 but in most previous years, it had been around 5,000 um, and with uh, about 10,000, well, uh, more than 10,000 new applications every year, you can see that the demand is higher than the supply and so the queue keeps getting longer. Now, there are two visa streams. Maybe you could explain the difference, please. Yes. Yeah, so one's a, a called a contributory visa and one is called, um, well, a non-contributory visa. And there's a there's a welter of different numbers that go with them, and it's all very complicated. But the key thing we have to keep keep in mind, the contributory visa costs about $50,000 per person. Uh, that's the amount of charges that the, you pay to the government for this visa. And the idea of contributory is that the parents who are coming in will contribute to their future costs in terms of things like health care and aged care and so on. Um, actually, the Productivity Commission and Treasury say that's only a small proportion of their likely lifetime costs, but it's, it's a contribution. Another way of thinking about it is as a first-class visa. You know, you get to go through the fast lane and, and, and get your visa issued earlier. This is a visa that was brought in 20 years ago by Philip Ruddock. He had to fight long and hard to get it in uh, amidst opposition from uh, Labor and the Greens in the Senate. He eventually got it through and it's now become the dominant visa. So we have more visas issued in this contributory category than in the non-contributory, which is much cheaper. And initially, it, it was a quick visa. You got you could get a visa in two years, but now there's such demand, and the numbers haven't increased that the wait time for this visa is now 12 years. Goodness. Uh, and uh, well, that's according to the Home Affairs website. If you if you look at the mm. expert panel's view, it's at least 15 years. The other visa, the non-contributory visa, only costs only about six or seven thousand dollars per person. But the wait time for that is, well, at least 29 years, according to Home Affairs, if you applied today, and according to the expert panel um, that reviewed the migration program, 40 plus years. Oh, so, so you, I mean, you, you want to have very young parents. Yes, children, it doesn't work. To Australia. Are, there, are you able to discern which countries we're talking about? Who's mainly involved here? 
so the, the, there's a lot of countries involved. I mean, the, the largest number of applications come from China, followed by India. Um, I think Vietnam is next, and then um, the UK. So they're the they're the four largest. But there's lots of countries. I mean, there's there's you know people from all sorts of countries want to bring their parents to Australia. So it it does in some way reflect uh, the the cons. cons institution of our skilled migration program. It's those families who've migrated who then say, oh, well, actually, we've got grandkids now, or we've got children now. We'd love to have our parents here. Mm. So they know their grand, you know, children know our, their grandparents, pass on culture, pass on, you know, assist with childcare, practical things as well. Or, oh, my parents are getting old. My, my father's died. My mother's alone. I want to bring her to Australia to be with us. You know, very uh, heartfelt desires at, at both the connection with grandchildren and the care of parents as, as they age. Yes, you've got some quite some anecdotes, including Nam, uh, who migrated to Australia in the early 2000s. And 10 years ago, his mother and brother were killed in an accident in Southeast Asia. Their father's alone on their small family farm. He's now 78. Um, good health, but obviously Nam is concerned for his dad's future. So, I mean, that's that's just one example. Oh yeah, and, and if you if you scout around the various websites um, that, uh, that you know and, and Facebook uh, groups and so on that people have set up, you, there are heartrending stories here. Um, however, so it is, it, yeah, however, well, it, 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 listeners will be surprised, I think, when the way you're speaking, you have drawn a quite tough conclusion. Yes, well, my my conclusion, Geraldine, is actually I think that um, you know we could go back to the past. Um, and to a, a view of parents as immediate family. But if we were to do that, it would increase the migration program by 20 or 30,000 places a year. And these wouldn't be skilled migrants and they would be people towards the end of their working lives or, or at the end of their working lives who would, you know, who would require health care and aged care and housing and all those things. So, uh, I don't think any government is going to do that. I think there's a strong moral argument to do that based on duty of, of care to, to parents and so on, but I don't think the government's going to do that. So I think rather than endless queues, we should be honest with people and say, look, we're, we don't want parents. We can't, um, you know, we can't take in endless numbers of parents and so therefore we're not going to give you false hopes. We're going to close these visa categories down, but on the proviso that everyone in the queue gets processed. There is an alternative which was canvassed by the expert panel and that is for a lottery system. So everyone can put in an expression of interest to bring their mum or dad to Australia and then the government essentially pulls numbers out of a hat. A certain number of every year Canada does it this way and the lucky ones get in and the rest try again next year. Um, so saying no, we, we could process. You'd say how long would it take to clear that queue then? Really? Well, at current rates of, of about 8,000 visas a year, 140,000 140, divided by 8,000, my argument is we should raise the rate to 20,000 a year to clear the queue, so it would still take seven years or so. Um, that's what Canada did when it shifted from um, it shifted to a lottery system. First of all, it, it stopped taking any applications, it cleared its queue, and then it brought in the lottery. And I think you know, that would be, if we're going to make changes, whatever we do, we should honour those applications that have already been made. Uh, and what, uh, have you had any indication from the government that there is movement in this station? Uh, well, the government's response to the expert review of migration was that uh, it would focus on skilled migration first, and then it would 
turn its attention to family migration next. So I had a comment from Andrew Giles, the Immigration Minister, yesterday that they're considering the migration review, the expert review of the migration program, and they'll have more to say on this in the future. So they're certainly considering that. And as I say, the expert review suggested that we should perhaps move to a lottery system. Oh, what, a, what an interesting uh, review. Thank you very much indeed for joining us, Peter. It's a pleasure, Geraldine. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Peter uh, and Peter's report, Peter Mayer's report, M-A-R-E-S, is for the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute, which you might like to seek out. He also works at the Cranlana Centre for Ethical Leadership and writes a lot. Now, coming up in our next hour of Saturday Extra, our July edition of The Pick, um, a discussion also on critical minerals, which, as I said earlier, people might say, oh, my goodness, that sounds rather dry. Well, I promise you it's really not. It's, it's, it's another discussion about whether we become a quarry and we ship things out when we, when we mine them. But it's actually much more than that because these critical minerals really do drive the, the modern world and they matter both geopolitically and in terms of jobs. So I do hope you can join us for that. Also, Dr Michael Green from the US Study Centre. And look, before we go to the 8 o'clock news. Can I um, invite all of you uh, to contribute to a government review that has been announced about um, options for stable funding for national broadcasters, that is the ABC and the SBS. Last week, the Communications Minister, Michelle Rowland, announced the review at a Friends of the ABC dinner and she called it a chance to have your say about options to support the independence of the broadcasters. And she said these were hallmarks of a stable democracy. Now, if you go to the Minister's website, you can see what it proposes to explore and what it does not propose to explore. You have until Thursday, August the 31st to have you say your say. So I leave that with you. I know you like these things. It's now eight o'clock, news time. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.